Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let me start with a confession. I'm a Presbyterian. <laughs> and I hope you would permit me to do a little remembering uh, with you and me of our intersecting history between Presbyterians and Episcopalians. I'm going to start with a fellow named John Knox. You know, there are three major reformers. Of course, there's Martin Luther, the beer-drinking German. There's John Calvin, the wine-sipping Frenchman. And John Knox, the whiskey-swilling Scot. In lots of ways, John Knox is the most difficult character. John Knox was indeed a crotchety Scot. His reservoir of vituperations, easy for me to say, was vast and bottomless. Here's an example of one of his more pointed sermon titles. First blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. The monstrous women being, of course, not the entire feminine race, but the female French royals, of course, Mary, Queen of Scots, who tried to turn his manly, macho, homeland of Scottish lads in kilts into a French-speaking, burgundy-sipping, escargot-eating, Roman Catholic province of the King of Versailles. <laughs> he was a gloomy and difficult, unyielding and sharp-tongued man, and yet almost single-handedly converted his homeland into what would eventually become known as Presbyterianism. And it was his disciples who carried this newfangled ecclesiology across the Atlantic in tiny leaky boats and dropped it first on the eastern shore of Maryland, where it planted stubborn roots in deep soil and spread like kudzu south to the Carolinas and Georgia and north to Pennsylvania and eventually sowed the seeds of bitter discontent with King George's taxation without representation, which is why in London the American Revolution was known as the Presbyterian Rebellion. These are the myths that we Presbyterians, that we're the cause of the American Revolution, <laughs> that we tell each other, and especially we tell it on Christ the King Sunday. With any good myth and tradition, there is some part of it that is factual, more than one half of the soldiers in Washington's army were Presbyterians. When Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, every colonel in the colonial army but one was a Presbyterian elder. So there is some truth to the claim that John Knox is the father of the American Revolution. That's the Presbyterian contribution to politics, philosophy, and theology, this towering distrust of centralized authority, this suspicion of kings and queens, this intense egalitarianism that finally leads one to the thought that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever, wherever any form of government becomes destructive of the, of the ends, it is the right of the people to alter it and abolish it and to institute new government. Okay, sure, this last clause is Jefferson's. 
and Jefferson was an Episcopalian. <laughs> but he was thinking like a Presbyterian when he wrote those words. <laughs> now, John Knox was born early in the 16th century, 16 miles from Edinburgh, to a farmer and his wife. She was a Sinclair. He served as a parish priest in England and once was offered a bishopric. But he turned it down because he'd fallen in with these Bible-thumping, mass-opposing proto-Presbyterians. Early in his life, he was such a vitriolic and violent Protestant that he was sentenced to a slave galley ship, where he spent 19 months pulling 18-foot oars through the water and then spent years in exile on the continent because it was not safe for him to return to his homeland. He spent time in France and in Germany, and then he finally ended up in Calvin's Geneva. And he was enchanted with Calvin's ecclesiastical and political innovations. John Knox called Calvin's Geneva the most perfect school of Christianity the world had ever seen. When it is finally safe for him to return home in 1559, he takes Calvin's innovations with him and plants a second Geneva in Edinburgh, where it gets his Scottish brogue. In Edinburgh, the, gloom, the gloomy Scot commences a long, loud war of words with the loyal Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots. John Knox referred to Mary as Satan's sister. How's that for a sharp Knoxianism? The Queen of Scotland, Satan's sister. Diplomacy was not his best thing. Yet here he joins Presbyterians and Anglicans and Episcopalians in its rejection of the Catholic Church and the Pope. John Knox might have been one of the few males in the British Isles who was not entirely smitten with Mary, Queen of Scots. She was bright, she was witty, all reports she was drop-dead gorgeous. Five times Knox marches over to Mary's Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh to tell her brazenly what exactly she's doing wrong. One time Mary looks out her window to see the gloomy Scot marching up the royal road to Holyrood and she says, oh my God, I would rather see a full battalion of enemy soldiers marching upon me than that crotchety Scot. <laughs> now several times he reduces her to tears. He apologizes, sort of. He says, I pray God, madam, that you may be blessed within the Commonwealth of Scotland but if you overreach your authority, I will become your sworn arch enemy. As a prophet of God, it is my solemn vow to point out idolatry when I see it. When he dies at the age of 55 in 1572, a friend at his grave said, Here lieth one who in his life never feared the face of man. That's an epitaph anyone can be proud of, the crotchety Scot. Perhaps some Presbyterians are indeed chips off the old Noxian block, claiming Christ as king. They rail against what they see as idolatry in the society. How quickly and easily do seemingly devout followers of Christ transform that Christ into their own idolatry? Still, there is something beautiful about the legacy of John Knox. Here lieth one who in his life never feared the face of man. You see, when Christ is key in your life, all fear vanishes. Subordinate loyalties are dethroned, and all earthly powers are put in their proper place. John Knox would have loved the passage from Revelation a few moments ago, we heard. It's one of the readings for, right, this Christ the King Sunday. 
And did you notice the multiple and extravagant acclamations of the author of Revelation piles up trying to capture just a tiny fraction of the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the head of the church, and the Lord of the universe? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John Knox lived by those acclamations, preaching his biting sermons among the towering kings and queens of Europe, Mary in Scotland, Elizabeth in England, Charles in France, Philip in Spain, William of Orange in Holland. John Knox was probably remembering St. Paul, who acclaimed the rustic carpenter of, from Nazareth with such grandiosities within earshot of Emperor Nero, the most, most powerful man in the world. When Christ is king in your life, you can no longer kneel before puny princes, pygmy principalities, and paltry powers. When Christ is king in your life, all thrones, all dominions, all principalities, all powers are unseated. When Christ is king in your life, you no longer need fear the face of man. And that's a good way to live. Now, you may know that Presbyterians and Anglicans love paradoxes. Remember the second reading in the lectionary for today from the Gospel of John. It describes the paradox in using the image of Christ as a king for inspiration. Remember, Pilate replies, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom for this world my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asks him, so you're a king? Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. For this I was born. For this I came into the world. To testify to the truth, everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. The paradox of Christ the King is that we live like Christ is king, but of a kingdom that's not of this world. Through our myths and our traditions, with a capital T, we see the truth of what it means for Christ to be king. Yet we also see the great danger in it, the violence, the sexism, the racism, the xenophobia. Some have even used it to turn on the stranger and the refugee who comes to live among us. First we worry some might be terrorists, then we deem them, demonize them all as Syrians, and then we say we are really looking to exclude all Muslims from the Middle East. Yeah, that's the ticket. It's as if we want to protect ourselves by using the name of Christ to deny refuge to people who themselves are on the run from terror. We use poles to justify our position. We take this super-saturated phenomenon of Christ's sacrifice of love and we make it into an idol to serve our own positions of power and prestige. But Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world. And we confess in our history that we have perverted it through myths and our traditions, and we perverted the truth that Christ teaches. It is in the hermeneutics of this interpretation of our stories that we see its complexity and perversions, and of our current interpretations, how wrong they can be. And yet how Christ opens us up to new possibilities and a new way of understanding his kingdom of love. He opens us to a new way of living in forgiveness and liberation. Let's remember one additional example of a man whose life was lived inspired by the same Noxian claim 
that Christ is king, and then a brief coda, and I will finish. We sometimes forget that Martin Luther King took charge of the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. He was only 26 years old, fresh from seminary, serving his very first church, 26 years old, and he just 12 more years to live. Late one night during the boycott, Dr. King answered the phone at his house. The voice on the other end said, listen, nigger, we've taken all we want from you. Before next week is over, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. Dr. King was completely unnerved. He couldn't sleep the rest of the night and finally put his head in his hands at the kitchen table and he prayed. Listen, God, I'm not here. I, listen, God, I'm here. I'm taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And then Dr. King says, at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never before experienced it. It seemed to me as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness, Martin. Stand up for truth. God will be on your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to pass from me. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. The outer situation remained the same, but God had given me inner calm. Put your confidence in something that works, says Peter Gomez. It is God who will keep you when all else has failed you. And it is God to whom you will turn when you have exhausted all the alternatives. It is God on whom you will call when you get the fateful diagnosis. It is God on whom you will call when the bottom drops out. And it is God on whom you will call when you pass through those seasons of doubt and despair when life itself seems not worth living and you cannot remember the last victory. And it is God on whom you will call with your very last breath. So in the end, our song on this day is a three-part refrain. We worship Christ as king. We remember at table that Christ is king. And our constant continuing prayer is that Christ be both our king and shepherd. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost.